into Regular Hours, episode 162 for May 11th, 2021. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Springtime Chip Essenfly. And I'm Pam Vador. Springtime in in the South. It uh, There was the threat of snow last night here in Chicago, Chip. Good job. Thanks it's for that. It's pollen season down here, Steve. Pollen yeah. season. It's a yellow <laughs> film everywhere. It's like snow, but it's pollen. <laughs> Great. Remind me not to visit you down there. <laughs> we are still in the middle of our exploration of the alternative history, The Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Kowal. Part two starts this week where we, we got a time jump in part two. This this one takes place in 1956, four years after our first nine chapters. And once again, I really like how she uses little stories from newspapers from around the world to kind of really gently set the scene, let us know what's happening. So here we find out uh, quite a bit about the state of the world and the U.S. So there are famines around the world. And specifically, she talks about a big, big famine in the Ukraine, um, which is what happens with the two degrees Celsius um, change of temperature. Now, I was intrigued by the new capital city of the United States, Kansas City. What did you guys well, think about that? Well, it's good barbecue there. It's a barbecue capital. I went to Kansas City on a Friday. No, sorry. That's Oklahoma. That's a totally different musical. <laughs> and Well, interesting, you know, Kansas City is in the middle of the United States. Mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, if, if, if the United States was being developed today, you know, would Washington, D.C. have been picked? as the capital. And it was, you know, the capital of the East Coast as far as halfway in, in between. But certainly, you know, what became the United States, Kansas City is certainly more centrally located. Mm-hmm. And many of those areas in our book don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. I think Kansas City is a very rational choice. I think that that makes mm-hmm. sense. I don't think Chicago would be the right choice. I think it's too far north. I think Kansas City would be pretty central to this new United States. Yeah. And just like, that's not a city I know very well, but I've been there a few times and it does not feel like a government town at all. And so thinking about that as a capital city is kind of fascinating. It's amazing when I think of the capital of Illinois being Springfield, it doesn't seem like a government town, but it pretty much is. I I think that it becomes that as a result of that activity being there. Mm -hmm. Certainly, you're correct on that point. But Springfield being the capital of Illinois is interesting because many of the government offices are in Chicago. Uh huh. That's isn't that a, we're a weird state. That's yes. for sure. <laughs> that the, well, the, and I think I used to live in New York State, and similarly, you know, Albany doesn't really have the same energy as New York City. So. So we've got all sorts of things happening in our world in 1956 here. We have rationing happening. Now remember, 1956 would be just about 10 years out from World War II, where rationing was a big part of history. So the author here says, well, they just started rationing again because that's what they were used to. And it wasn't really noted as a, as a big deal in this story, right? And I thought she did a really nice job of, you know, from through our narrator... Um, Elma York through our focalization for Elma this is just totally natural Mm -hmm. the idea that they have their ration cards they have to choose their food accordingly 
it is so interesting to me to think about what we've gone through in the last year and how at the beginning we certainly thought about food and where we were going to get food and we still have so many people who have food insecurity in our pandemic right now the the food banks are just overwhelmed with need at this point but we haven't gotten to the ration card level yet and i i, I don't suspect that we will spam 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 <laughs> Spam, have spam sales spiked in the last year? I don't know. <laughs> well, certainly, you know, during world, the world wars, canned meat became very important. Mm-hmm. And recipes were full of all sorts of ways to use that canned meat to make it palatable. And uh, we have some very interesting recipes that came out of that time. I wonder if we'll have a, a revolution in recipes after the pandemic. I don't know. I think everyone's learned to cook off YouTube. And, you know, who can forget, you know, tuna fish, lime jello, and mm-hmm. olives? I mean, it's great. Uh, that's 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 what I was thinking of, was the definitely the finding a way to stick that protein into something else so that you can hide it from your family. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because in this novel, everything is classified as either before or after. And it's funny, they go to the meteor instead of the meteorite. But I do wonder to what degree we will think like before and after the COVID pandemic. You know, it's obviously a very different kind of global disaster, but I think it probably does mark a before and after period. And she does some really nice, um, some really nice analysis of that sort of threshold idea in a sermon at the synagogue where the rabbi says there's a threshold between before and after. We have many of these every day, which we do not recognize. The threshold is not the question. There will always be befores and afters. The question is, what do you do after you cross the threshold? Mm-hmm. And this isn't a sermon that asks people to think, where were you when you found out about the meteorite? And this is, again, that mirror to our our real history and these Jewish people who just got out of World War II, who are are remembering the befores and afters of that suffering and applying it to the suffering of this meteorite and therefore, as an extension, the sufferings of the readers in the 21st century here and thinking about there's always a before and an after. We have those pivotal moments. I think this pandemic is going to be one of those pivotal moments that everyone will remember. The idea that she comes up with in the book is the answer to the question, what do you do after you cross the threshold? The answer is you live, you remember. This is what our people have always done. And, and I I know that she's referring to our people here as the Jewish people, but our people being Americans, our people being teachers, our people being whatever group that we want to classify as our people, we have these moments that we have together, and then we go on, we live and remember, and I hope that that's what we're going to be able to do again after this pandemic. There's an election in our 1956. Uh, there's an election going on. And and the quote is, with the election, people were starting to lose sight of the reason for getting into space. This is pretty common, right? Whenever there's another issue, space seems to be a, a far away, oh, let's just call it a moonshot kind of idea, right? Basically, you're always comparing 
something that is ambitious, well, it's, it's going to save humanity, with something that there are needs here today that we need to take care of right this moment. And that uh, constant um, tension is, you know, how, how much do you prepare for the future when, you, when you've got so many needs at this moment? Mm-hmm. And I think that Kowal is also, this is very much a book written in 2018. And she's t- thinking about the climate crisis here as well. And the fact that you can get people, you know, pretty worked up about actually dealing with the climate crisis for a little while after specific weather events or whatever, but then things go back to normal and, you know, people kind of lose sight of these really long-term problems. And that's what we read in the Ministry for the Future was, <laughs> was what do we do today and how much emphasis do we need to put on tomorrow and how much do we discount the future for the efforts of today? I once heard a critique of pop music and every once in a while you'll have a, a, an era that'll come in where things are reflective and uh, important issues are discussed in pop music. And then, you know, within six months, all of a sudden it's a party again. And, you know, all the music goes back to a party. And so a lot of times, if you're constantly in crisis, you're never in crisis. Mm. The gun problem in Chicago is that it's a constant daily problem and because it's a constant daily problem it is hard to emphasize it as something that needs to be solved because it's constant it's every day you get used to you can get used to a lot of things in this life (laughs) as we have found out over these past 15 months or so right Mm mm-hmm the author here goes into that idea of a return to normalcy and talks about issues that we've been talking about for the last 15 months. She says, so I'm going to bet money right now that a return to normalcy with women relegated back to being homemakers is going to be a key election issue. I think that the upcoming, the next elections in our timeline we're going to think about normalcy and what does that mean and what has changed in the last 15 months with regard to race relations and and the role of women we've there's so many so many reports lately about the job market and how many women are really not able to get back to the job market right now this is very similar to what we're reading in, in this book yeah and how education is or isn't going to change as well. Because as we've made a lot of shifts and also people's work-life balance, as we've made shifts for the pandemic, we found some affordances as well as some serious challenges to the changes we've had to make. Mm-hmm. That idea of going back to normal yeah. and, and carrying with it all of those things that we know we did wrong and, and not doing those things. And I feel like after after the media right, there is no back to normal, right? You have to create a new normal. Mm-hmm. That's probably always true when you have a major disaster. But this one, you don't go to fireworks displays anymore. There's a right. section in this book where, where she's talking about the 4th of July. And she's like, no, I, I don't really want to go watch fireworks, fire uh, raining down from the sky. No, thank you. I, I'd rather do something else. 
Well, and there's such a focus on mental health questions in this novel. And certainly this notion that, of course, Elma has PTSD and she's going to be triggered by some sort of entertainment fireworks after, after her experience of the meteorite, as will many people. The other results, uh, we've got the assassination of an Algerian politician by anti-space terrorists in this section. Uh, boy, we've we've read a lot about terrorism in the last book and how uh, sometimes force might change people's minds. This would change people's minds about space, maybe. It did remind me very much of Ministry for the Future and that notion of different kinds of terrorisms that are the the politics um, behind terrorist actions. And so it, it kind of, it reminded me of that. And again, I feel like these two books go together really well. I know, Steve, they, they feel so different from one another, but the way that they think about the climate crisis, they do, they do touch upon many of the same topics from completely different perspectives. Good. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad that I, I chose a book that fits in with our conversation. Uh, I like this book a lot better. Yes. <laughs> now, one thing I really liked about this was when she said that immediately after the doomsday, there was free love. And now that a little bit of time has passed three or four years, people are starting to get married again and have kids. And Elma wonders whether this is a sign of hope where people can actually imagine a future or a sign of complacency where they're like, well, who knows? We'll just see what happens. And I do think, once again, this brings us back to our pandemic with mm-hmm. dropping birth rates during the past 15 months across the world, but also to climate crisis with my conversations with 18 to 24 year olds where they're like, I'm not having a kid, not in this climate. Mm-hmm. Double meaning intended. Hope or complacency, though, that is that's an intriguing notion. The idea of hope having a world for our children that's the hope the Mm -hmm. complacency is uh, we we can't do anything about it so we're not going to worry about it we're just going to go on with our lives i don't know i don't know which one's going to happen first in 2021 and they probably both happen at the same time hmm I, different perspectives. I, I'm, I'm struggling with complacency myself right now. I, I really want to get back to normal. I, I desire that so much that I'm sometimes not as careful. And that complacency could be very dangerous right now. We're going to redefine a lot of things. Work weeks could change. Work weeks could be four-day work weeks. I mean, we, we've become so gifted at efficiencies. You know, do you have to work five days? I mean, this is this has been humanity's quest for a long, long time mm-hmm. on you know this idea of leisure versus your work life. I mean, we we just there's just a lo- when I'm seeing in my profession, I, I see a lot of people. I get to talk to them about what their goals are and things of that nature. And during this period of time, they're, they're recognizing this need for leisure. There, there's plenty of articles right now in the paper. All you need to look for them is that people are having a very difficult time with their work life and their uh, their their non work life because it's just just blend right now, mm-hmm. and it just 
you know, what, how, how will we change that? And uh, last summer, what, what did we find? We found a number of people went on incredibly ambitious vacations. Mm-hmm. You went on once, Steve. I did. Um, but, a lot of, but a lot of other people did that too. They, they finally went to see the Grand Canyon. They finally went to, um, you know, do something. But they did it outdoors. And, they, and it may have been, um, it may have not been that thing, but it was the experience that they were looking for. That was my hope versus my complacency there. That was my hope and and getting out and being somewhere. Even though we weren't able to go inside places, we saw the outsides of lots of great places across the country last year. And most of us are going to live less than 100 years. So when you really get down to it, you're here just for a blip of time. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a very um, negative. <laughs> I, I want to be more positive about this story. This is, I, I like this story very much, but this is definitely a section of the story that is similar to our lifestyle, isn't it? So we, we get to use words like meteor and meteorite, and it's the same word, right, Pam? <laughs> English I professor. I actually, I loved this element of the story that she starts off in the in part one. She's like, it's a meteorite, not a meteor. These things are not the same. And then by part two, everyone just calls it like meteor winter and people just drop the meteorite part entirely. And that feels so realistic to me because, you know, first of all, language is a living and breathing and changing thing. So our language changes all the time. And think about even, you know, just not that long ago, the use of the word them as a non-gendered singular pronoun felt kind of strange to those of us who were, you know, trained in the grammatical structures, she or he, he or she, and one might do things. And now we just use they all the time in recognition of non-binary gender. And so these things are constantly changing. And so I did think that was nice. It was also, I felt like the meteor meteorite thing reminded me of how, you know, scientists talk about things versus the media. And then how that's a feedback loop. So sometimes, I mean, data datum is another great example of data as a plural. And so the data are available, but people always say, the data's here, the data is available. Mm-hmm. And that feeds back into scientific papers now. I really liked that. That felt so realistic to me. Yeah, I enjoyed all the all the conversations about the English language and mm-hmm. and the idea of the before and after applies here. Before this event, maybe we would have looked at it more scientifically. Maybe the scientists were the only ones thinking of a meteorite. But now that it's a part of everybody's lifestyle, the language adapts to the situation. That happens so often. This, bo- this book slaps, I just want to say that. And when I was working out and getting swole, um, I mean, it really did uh, speak to me. <laughs> Thank you, hip chip. <laughs> I'm hip. I'm no square. <laughs> oh, <boy>. Daddy-o. <laughs> 
one of my favorite parts of this section is they bring up Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. And, and the author here shows us that these sorts of stories were being written in the 1950s and reminds us about that time in history. The Martian Chronicles, Ray Bradbury, one of the ABCs of science fiction, certainly brought a whole generation of people into the idea of what could the future be? What could the space program bring us? And the hopes of novels of 2018 bringing us to what could the future be, even while looking back at the past. I, I love that. Yeah, and I actually just taught Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, published just a couple years after in 1954, and it still speaks to people so strongly. It's about the burning of books, and yet it absolutely speaks to our questions about technology today and about how we read and what we read and what is the relationship. For Bradbury, it was between books and TV, but today it's between books and the internet. All these questions are still so much alive. And I think it's exciting. That's where we get hope, Steve. When we look back, you know, 60, 70, 80, almost 100 years and see that things have changed radically. But at the same time, we still do have a lot of the same questions. These are human questions that we don't necessarily answer. And that's a good thing. I'm currently watching the, the HBO series on Q. And part of it is um, when you have servers based anywhere mm. and how information is presented, one of the, the questions they're asking about is how does free speech work in this type of environment where you know you can put anything and everything out there, but what if it incites you know, insurrection and, and things of that nature? Mm -hmm. the, the, the entire um, series, the, the HBO series, basically asks you to question this idea of, of publishing and how it should be published and mm. uh and i i really you you're, you're you know I'm, I'm a i'm a believer that everything uh could be available but then at the end of it you really are questioning like wow this certainly is could be quite dangerous anyway we have to live with the danger because you know there's the good and the bad what can we say you take the good you take the bad you take them both and there you have the facts yeah, of life well the the worst the, the alternative is censorship. The alternative is what China is dealing with right now. Right. And is that really the proper way to deal with information? Is, is the filter that you apply to the information the right way to get the information? Or are you missing out on some of the information? But you're not choosing the filter. The filter is no. being chosen for you. Uh, that is, and is that even more dangerous than, than yes. having all the information out there? Yes. Yeah. I'll go ahead and answer that. Yes. Yes. Problem solved. There's a lot of focus in this section on the way that men underestimate women, right? This is a big uh, feminist section, isn't it, Pam? I was going to say, can I, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, of course I interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want me to ask you, Chip? <laughs> This is a big issue of the 50s, I can tell you right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I was actually really curious about how this how this reads to men. So I actually would love to hear Chip's perspective on this. I'm just reading this. I'm going, is this really the 50s? But you know, you have to, you know, this is an alternative alternative history. And they have the the space race has started way before it started in 
our timeline. So maybe this is much more of an issue. But um, I mean, in the 1950s, if I was writing a book, I, it just seems to be a little out of place for that period of time as it would be in our timeline. Well, and it's interesting because I think in some ways as I'm reading this novel, which I'm super enjoying, it feels almost more like a time travel novel than an alternate history because the perspective of our main character, Alma York, who I totally love, just like you do, Steve, it's a 21st century perspective. So mm -hmm. she does not at all feel like a 1950s woman who's doing that sort of feminist analysis. I've read the feminist analyses of the 1950s. They don't look anything like this. This is a, this is a 2018 perspective. And so in some ways I'm kind of curious why she didn't do a time travel piece because then she could actually have that 21st perspective looking back at the 1950s. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with you that the author here is definitely writing this in 2018 and definitely offering her very 21st century perspective and applying it to these 1950s characters does seem out of place. I'm all for it. Believe me, I am all for the ideas that she is proposing here as, boy, we did this wrong in the 1950s and we could have done it better. But in the 1950s, I don't think these conversations were had. No, I don't, I don't think so either. Um, but it is, and of course, she's also making a commentary on today. Just like she's, you know, talking about our climate crisis and taking away the anthropogenic part. She's also talking about gender roles today. So when we see Colonel Parker... It's not like, you know, <laughs> women in the workplace today aren't like, my goodness, I've never met such an obnoxious person. He's very, very familiar, of course. And so one thing that I really liked in the kind of feminist analysis that she takes up is that Elma is very aware of her own biases. So there's this wonderful part where she and Colonel Parker are having a conversation about G-forces and Elma says, oh, you know, women are actually much better able to handle G-forces than men. And then she realizes, okay, that's kind of true, but not exactly because I'm actually very tall and G-forces are way more linked to height and blood pressure than to gender. So she recognizes and tells the reader that she's kind of skirting the truth a little bit. And I like that Like she still does it, but she does recognize that she's letting her own rhetoric get away from her scientific bent. And I think that's very, I found that very charming and and then there's that second conversation where she's having a similar conversation with her husband who is very uncomfortable and he says there was some dot 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 concern about the stresses of space and she goes back to that stresses women handle g-forces better than men and then i broke off at the sudden compression of his lips as if he were biting back words are you kidding me we're talking about the other kind of stress we're talking about being hysterical in space that is the the other version of this conversation and this brings us back to that moment we talked about last week where 
Elma said she had her period, which is why she couldn't go to a meeting. And so she used this stereotype that she's now completely railing against. And back to that Victorian idea of hysterics and how women couldn't trust their own emotions. Is that the right way to put that? Women might go into a fury or a, a hysterical situation and we men we have to take steps all of our conversations that we've had about the victorian era and uh, the sanatoriums and and terrible things that were done in the name of helping women comes back in this 1950s setting and we get some great secondary characters here so obviously Colonel Parker, our very sexist jerk, um, who seems super familiar. Then we have Bubbles, who's one of the engineers, who Elma looks at much more positively than Colonel Parker, maybe in part because he doesn't have as much power. But um, but he does this, he calls women computress instead of computer. And I kind of like that they call the people computers, right? So people who are doing these really detailed computations, people with PhDs in math and physics are called computers or computress. <laughs> and the women do not enjoy that at all. But again, this is this is pulling into a sort of 1980s and 90s feminism where, where women got really, really involved in the use of politically correct language, not really from the 50s, but... I also love Helen Liu, who is a total chess master. And she keeps having chess matches with Renard Carmouche, who is a French engineer. And he keeps like not understanding how much better at chess she is than he is. So there's these kind of really sort of delightful, charming secondary characters who keep making that same point that men are constantly underestimating women and also engaging in various forms of sexual harassment in the workplace. Mm -hmm. We get to Leroy Pluckett, who is, quote, a damn good engineer, but couldn't keep his hands off of the computers. Uh-huh. We see a, a sexual harassment in the workplace in the 1950s. And again, this is presented from a very 21st century perspective. I don't know that a 1950s character really would have reacted the same way that our Elma gives us in the narration here. Yeah, I think that's true, Steve. It's still, it's very recognizable for us. And hey, we're reading it in 2020, so we're good. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, remember we talked to Robert J. Sawyer about how the writing is of the era. Even if you're writing about the 1950s, you're really writing about current times in science fiction. And I think that's great that you bring up Robert J. Sawyer, Steve, because he recently wrote a very, very good alternate history called The Oppenheimer Alternative. And, you know, he did a ton of research and I think really, really captures the zeitgeist of the period in a way that this one is a little bit is capturing two zeitgeists at once deliberately. So it's a very different experience than I'm used to in alternate histories, but very interesting. One of the things that we see in in this book is Elma is totally overwhelmed. Something that we can really we can really understand in this pandemic. Elma feels overwhelmed by all of the things that she feels she's expected to handle 
in society in the 1950s. Yeah, so she has a double doctorate in math and physics, and she's doing all these calculations for the space program. And yet she's also doing, you know, most or all of the work at home. And obviously Nathaniel's a very busy guy as well, but they're not sharing the housework at all. I do like, though, that Nathaniel uh, really respects her and understands her. And when she gets super overwhelmed, she her own strategy for coping is to list out the digits of pi. I didn't count how far she goes. I think she's got the I don't know. She does like she lists out 30 or 40 digits. But Nathaniel actually gives her um, computations to do. <laughs> so if he feels like she's going a little out of control, he will just say, what, 17 times 3,430, Steve? Alma yeah. <laughs> comes right back. <laughs> because she's a math genius. That is her speciality. And he knows his wife. He knows that when she is overwhelmed, what she needs is to be separate from the situation, and math is that thing for her. Just like my wife knows that if I'm overwhelmed by something, I need to watch Mystery Science Theater for a couple of hours. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and not do math. And not be... Uh, you said numbers like twice now, and I was like, Pam saying numbers. Elma has a lot of very good reasons to be overwhelmed. And one of them is that she's in a totally unfamiliar multicultural world. And this is really interesting. It's in Kansas City. And there's this great quotation at the beginning of this um, part. She says, if you told me four years ago that I was going to be one of only two white women in my group of closest friends, I would have laughed. I'm ashamed of that now. She now finds that she's actually friends with several black women. And when she has a plan to create this awesome women pilot air show, she finds that she actually goes to the Kansas City Negro Aeronautics Club in order to borrow some super cool planes. And this is a really interesting scene. And it's so cringy, right? As you're mm -hmm. reading because some of the black women are like, wow, you didn't even think about us until you needed our planes. And this is the second time, right? We have that yep. call back to, I called every aeronautics club in the phone book. Oh, wait, I made the same mistake again. I called all of the white groups where this black group has what I need. And that's pretty embarrassing to, to come to that realization a second time. Since she had done this with mechanics immediately after the meteorite strike. And so in this scene, which I think is a very, very well written scene, you can just feel how she's so embarrassed. And especially as a Jewish woman who has had her own experiences, not only as a woman, but a Jewish woman, again, with the intersectional identity that we talked about last week. And now she's making these assumptions about someone else. And one of these black women pilots says, oh, you know, you think of me as a housewife. I have a PhD in chemistry. And Alma realizes, yeah, she did do that. And so she immediately apologizes, which leads another black woman in the club to say, well, that went a lot better than I expected. And Alma's like, 
what? How is that better? And she said, well, you apologized. Mm -hmm. And, and again, this is very 21st century. This is very much the zeitgeist of today and the ignorance that some of us have had for a long time and, and saying the wrong thing and, and not knowing it was the wrong thing until it was too late. And and she feels that here. She is a fish out of water in this situation, and she doesn't fall back to the discrimination that has been wrought upon her. She is ignorant once again. And at the same time, she's really involved, and it seems to me she's going to be really, really central in this project of opening up the space colony to women. And of course, there are some very, very funny scenes where she's like, of course, women need to go to space. It's a colony. You're going to have a hard time populating Mars without any women. Just saying. But um, but it is actually really interesting that the director of the of the space program says, look, it's not that I don't think that you could be a good astronaut. It's that we can't. This is all about media perception. Then he says, if a man dies, well, that's tragic, but people will accept that. A woman, no. The program would be shut down in its entirety. That's a very different argument than women will get hysterical. This is a public relations argument, much harder to combat. And I think back to the tragic loss of life in the space program that we experienced over the years and and he's not wrong the the loss of life of the male astronauts is tragic but those women that have been lost come to mind first because that's just something extra some extra piece of tragedy that comes with that gender difference as elma becomes more and more involved in actually becoming this sort of feminist voice for women in space, she becomes a real role model for women who dub her the lady astronaut, um, despite the fact she's not even an astronaut now. And I like that we get this sort of behind the scenes look at her public persona versus her private persona, because she has terrible stage fright and suffers from anxiety. Again, this 21st century look at mental illness it's interesting because she goes on this show, Mr. Wizard, which sounded like a show I would have loved as a kid. And <laughs> she's, um, and so when she's interviewed, she's like, she throws up a bunch of times before she goes on the show. But she realizes that she's having a major impact on young girls who see her as a role model. And it's interesting because we've seen her hit a bunch of geese when she's flying and she's cool as a cucumber. But the idea of public speaking just terrifies her. That's very common. I, <laughs> I have ex I've experienced this conversation with so many people over the years. Speaking as someone who is not nervous about public speaking. I enjoy public speaking. I have to really think about it when I'm teaching my students how to do public speaking. I really have to be aware that so many people around the world have a deep-seated fear of public speaking. And it's completely irrational. It is completely in their heads. And, and sometimes I can help students to get past that. But she has a physical manifestation of this. She is 
was vomiting violently because of her mental state. Well, thank goodness for doctors. He went to the, she went to the doctor, and of course, uh, they gave her some Soma. It's all better. <laughs> wrong, wrong story, but yeah, it's basically the right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I love the quote, though. You know you've worried your husband when he makes a doctor's appointment for you. This, that is that is absolutely the fact. There will there will be no doctor's appointments that I make for my wife. She is in charge of of medical for sure. I'm not calling anybody. <laughs> well, it is interesting though that you know when you think about like I always really enjoy that Jerry Seinfeld piece where he says you know the the fear of public speaking is actually a higher percentage than the fear of dying. So most of us would rather be the guy in the casket, the guy giving the eulogy. I've always remembered that. But it's interesting that Elma doesn't at all see it that way. She has this very specific narrative of why she has this absolutely traumatizing fear and paralyzing fear which is that she went to college when she was 14 and the guys really made fun of her and mocked her um, when she was at the, at the blackboard with the professor doing calculations as a traumatic gender-based trauma that she's still handling. But, but it, and as a universal, it, it just shows you how much a single experience could profoundly influence how you view yourself and how you're going to act uh, in the future. And beyond the room of students, it was the professor's fault. She points out to that these professors, plural, would always show that she knew what she was doing. She was a math genius and therefore degradate the male students. And she always felt like they were out to get her because the professor set it up that way. That, for me as a teacher, I, I read that section and went, oh boy, I had better be very careful with who I set on a pedestal and what the repercussions might be. And so it's interesting when she goes to see the doctor, they have this really interesting exchange. So he gives her anti-anxiety medication and she says, I'm not taking that. And she refuses to admit that she has an anxiety problem, even though I think from our perspective, reading the novel, we do see that now we might think talk therapy instead of Valium, but you know, but she actually refuses to even admit that she has a problem. The doctor does offer therapy in addition to the medication, but the medication is is presented here as step one of the process, which might be might be helpful to a lot of people. Absolutely, that, that idea of mother's little helper, that uh, that pill that can help people get through their anxious moments, to get through that that hour or two of mental need in order to get to the the more secure conversation that can happen afterwards. And I think the conversation, the doctor pointed his pen at me. If I had told you that your vomiting was caused by influenza, would you also refuse to take any medicine? But that's different. It most certainly is not. Rolling his stool closer, he held out the prescription. My dear lady, your body is not supposed to react to stress in this way. You are, in literal fact, being made ill by forces outside yourself. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that statement, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Go for Good it, Lord. Well, I mean, I'm just saying that that your body is not supposed to act that way. In a stressful situation, you're not supposed to feel stress. What is that? That's, well, you're that's not supposed to, you're not supposed to you're vomit. Well, you're supposed to feel stress. It's a stressful situation. And stress can lead to a lot of positive things, but this violent illness that she gets is, is something that we have the medication to prevent and the doctor is giving her the, the tools to get past. I'm not really, I'm not buying that. The idea uh, that the pill is going to make the, is the answer to it. That sounds like a doctor, right? As opposed to working maybe in a different way, something a little more natural. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. He, he goes right for the pill. It's a solution. It's all better. No, it isn't. Mm -hmm. No, it isn't. The pill is step one. He does not only exclusively go with medication. So if he you says, go to the doctor and they say, hey, take this pill, as opposed to, hey, Steve, why don't you eat better and exercise? I mean, is that really the answer? I mean, if your life is in danger, it could be the answer, but maybe it isn't. Maybe lifestyle changes could be the answer. In addition when, to that, maybe you're not a person that should be put in stressful situations because that's not your thing to do. And that's kind of the theme that we're getting to for this book, Chip, is she is certainly trying to become an astronaut. And the stressful situation of being an astronaut is certainly the theme that we're approaching with this. So in the, in the military, there was a uh, program a few years ago about West Point, U.S. Military Academy. And the, uh, the, the freshmen, I, I can't remember what they're called, please, or something, uh, basically, uh, every morning they get shouted out, tell me what the food is for the day. And uh, it's incredibly stressful. And they're yelling out, you know, whatever it is, oatmeal, toast, whatever it is. And they go through it for the day. Well, that piece of stress is there for a reason. It's basically to work them through because there will be times when something is being demanded upon them and they have to act beyond the stress. They have to know the procedure. The point of the, the, the exercise is not necessarily recognizing what the, um, the meal is. The point of the exercise is recognizing that you will be under stress, you will have to act, and things of that nature. And the answer to that may not be, go take a pill. Well, and that's one thing I'm really interested in, in as we read the next several chapters of this. I'm really curious how Elma York is going to move forward through her stress and anxiety. And I think it's interesting that when she talks to the doctor, he says, you have anxiety, which is unsurprising given the age we live in. The papers are calling it the meteor age, but I think the age of anxiety is more apt. Mm -hmm. Again, this brings us right to today. It brings us right to the 21st century where we diagnose anxiety and depression, as well as anxiety and depression medications, which I think Chip, you and I both maybe have some similar feelings about, um, about overprescription. But this is the question, you know, a global catastrophe like this, what do we expect? Of course, there's gonna be a ton of anxiety, but it's interesting that for Elma, her anxiety, I think isn't related to all of the astronaut and pilot training that she wants to engage in, it's really related to the public speaking. Mm -hmm. 
That is an interesting thing that the author has has given us here. Is she is not anxious about the piloting. She, right. We've seen her be the the pilot. She's not anxious about the math. She's anxious about any kind of public speaking. She's on the phone with Mr. Wizard and he mentions that he would like to have her on the show. And she not only hangs up the phone, but backs away from it like it's dangerous. That is a, a huge reaction to that idea. I don't know. I think th I think that there's got to be a balance, especially in our anxious, stressful times that we live in right now, that we need to find the right balance. And it can't always be one answer for everybody. That's right. Absolutely. Yes, I should change my lifestyle. Thank you, Dr. Chip. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with, with pilots, think about what you're given. You're given a a fighter jet, for my example, or uh, just think of a pilot flying, you know, for a commercial airline. Planes are not inexpensive. There's a certain decorum. There's a certain uh, mindset that the pilots have. I mean, they really are unique and special people. And, and we definitely want them to have a clear head and to know what they're doing and to not be stressed and anxious about any of that while they're piloting those planes for sure. Yeah, this this is going to go into part three. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you right now that this is the central question of this book is how does somebody who has an anxiety disorder, how do they function? How do they go on to do spectacular things? Should they? Should someone who is diagnosed by a doctor, given medication, has a prescription for anxiety medication, should they be allowed to pilot, uh, say, rocket ship? That's The answer to that is yes, because I would like to see Elma in space. Well, I don't know. Do you, do you think... Speculate. Do you think that the lady astronaut's going to make it to space in this book, Pam? Hard to say, my friend. Hard to say. <laughs> I suppose we'll find out maybe in part three. Your assignment for next week is chapters 20 through 29 for next week. So we'll see what happens with our 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 characters here. I really love these characters and I really hope that everybody else is enjoying them with us. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think, Chip? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. There you go. What do you think, Pam? Absolutely. I'm in. Excellent. Chapters 20 through 29 next week. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. Our email is sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I'm Steve Foder. And I'm Springtime Chippesenfly. And I'm Ken Bedard. We'll see you in the future. What I wanna thank you for, what I wanna thank you for.